All right. Calm down. No, I'm joking. We're going to be reading from Scripture. We're continuing our sermon series. If you've been here the last couple weeks or logged in online, then you know that we're in a sermon series titled Already But Not Yet. And we've been tackling this concept that we hear Jesus refer to quite often in the Gospels, and the concept is the kingdom of God. He uses this phrase quite a bit, and what we looked at thus far is that at times how Jesus uses that phrase and how we interpret it can be very different. That for the most part, we tend to think of the kingdom of God as this celestial heavenly place. But what we discovered is that when we go into the original language, it actually means the place where the king rules. It's where the rule and reign of the king is experienced. So it's a here and now reality that Jesus is talking about. But we saw that at times Jesus described the kingdom of God as being at hand, being accessible, being near, being here right now. But then he would describe it as not fully here, as a kingdom that's going to fully come. So we've been exploring what it means to follow Jesus in light of being in the kingdom of God and understanding what he meant and how we process that. And so I encourage you, if you haven't heard the previous sermons, go to the website, catch up, be on the same page. But today, we're going to look at how the prophets describe Jesus as Messiah and how we often interpret that. Because there tends to be a big difference. We're going to look at how the prophets describe Jesus as Messiah Furthermore, how he described himself as Messiah and how we tend to interpret that and what are the gaps and what does that mean for the kingdom of God. We're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. This is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus arrives on the scene, prophesies and declares his coming and he says the following. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, they shall be, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. 
I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to draw near to you because of the way that you have made possible through your cross that we come not in our righteousness but in your righteousness before the holy throne of the Father. And we thank you for your presence and we thank you for your word. We pray you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, give us understanding hearts that we would understand the word of God. Illuminate to us. Reveal Jesus afresh. We thank you for this time in your word. Meet us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tomorrow is one of the most significant days in our country's calendar. But I would argue it's one of the most significant days in the world, um, world calendar. It, it's actually a tragic thing that often Martin Luther King Jr. is purported or celebrated as a hero specifically or, or only to the African-American community. And actually, when you understand the full intent of his message, he's a hero to all peoples because of what he was actually trying to see come to pass. In essence, to, to, if I could be as succinct as possible, with all the things he did and wrote, the heart of so much of what he did was he was trying to get America to actually live out its values. He was trying to get America to basically make do on the check they wrote. Because if you look at our Constitution and Declaration of Independence, the things that America said it stood for was vastly different than the experience that African Americans were having. And so the pursuit of justice, liberty, life that, that this country stood for, it was not being experienced by many of its citizens. And so he advocated and say, live up to what your ideals are, what you said you're about. Own up the fact that there's a discrepancy here, a huge discrepancy. And I think about tomorrow, and I think about tomorrow in light of what we're talking about in a very specific way. That often there's a gap that exists between the ideal and reality. That often there are things that we believe in conceptually, but we don't actually understand what they might look like experientially. And I think with respect to Jesus and how we understand him as Messiah, there's a huge cognitive dissonance that exists back then and even till this day. And it's an interesting cognitive dissonance that exists because if you look at the job description of the Messiah, if we look at Isaiah 61 and says, this is the job description of the Messiah, this job description is way bigger than just the forgiveness of sins. The Messiah is coming to do something way more than just cleanse people of shame and free people of personal idols. We read that the Messiah coming is going to bind up the brokenhearted, bring good news to the poor. We can try to spiritualize that and say it's spiritual poverty. But actually, if you look at the text, 
These are not spiritual cities that are in ruins that are going to be rebuilt. These are real cities that it says will be rebuilt from the coming of the Messiah. This is not spiritual injustice or justice that the Lord says he loves. It says, verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And so the Messiah, the way we're, we're being told, the Savior, this promised Messiah, his arrival would do more than just bring forgiveness. You see, he would not only just cleanse people from their sin, the prophetic hope was that the Messiah would transform society and cleanse society from the impact that sin has in all that we touch, see, and feel. See, in Isaiah's prophecy, the Messiah would bring justice, would restore cities. The Messiah would would create a world where the foreigner and, and, and the stranger, the immigrant, the outcast, the one on the margins would actually be welcomed. We read that. Yet, for most Christians today, our vision of who Jesus is has been reduced to the forgiveness of sins. Our vision of Jesus the Messiah is one who's only come to cleanse our conscience from sin and shame. It seems like we're reading a different job description than the one that was given to Jesus by the prophets. And just so that we're clear and to think, well, maybe the prophets had it wrong. Maybe that's how they saw him. And then Jesus saw himself differently. What's interesting is that this very prophecy, Isaiah 61, we read in the gospel of Luke, Jesus does something that's incredibly scandalous. I want you to pay attention because I know I'm not going to do this justice. But what I'm about to read to you will take any Korean drama and put it in the dust. (laughs) We'll take any story that you feel is riveting, does not compare. I don't know why my mom and her generation spent so much time watching Spanish novellas. They missed out. It's in the scriptures, the drama, the tension. I remember as a kid, you couldn't walk in front of the screen when Cara Sucia was on, you know? That, that, was, that was an actual name for a show. It meant dirty face. I don't know why. Anyway, I digress. What we're going to read now is racked with tension. Look at what it says. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. You feel the tension because look at what Jesus says next. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I need you to imagine. We're going to read more in a moment. I need you to imagine 
in the room are people who are waiting the Messiah to come. And they have these incredible hopes and expectations of when the Messiah arrives, what is going to happen in the world. Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah that we just read. He reads it and says, I just read about myself. I'm the Messiah. Basically drops the mic and sits down. This is a moment. And if you think I'm exaggerating the tension, let's read on. Look what happens after this. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Look at what it says. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I, mean, I told you, no, no drama has anything on this. How did they go from being fascinated with what he said to being so angry that they were ready to throw him off a cliff and kill him? I can tell you, I've said some things during sermons that maybe I've gotten an email Maybe I've gotten a text, hey, can we talk? To date, no one has tried to throw me off a cliff. And so Jesus, at this moment, got them so furious. Do you, like, I need you to imagine, how do you go from, we just had moments where we were worshiping. I saw your hands were raised. You were singing. You were just there. Imagine going from that to the next moment, I'm going to kill you. Like, literally, this, they went from that extreme what was so provoking about his words? If you notice what he said, he pointed out to them that God had continued to do, it's not going to be a new thing what they're about to see, that God had continuously at various points went outside the Jewish community to heal people whom the Jewish community at that time would have considered less than, a foreigner, an unworthy so whether it was Naaman the Syrian, whether it was the widow in Zarephath, he's saying, you had widows among you, and yet it was a widow outside of your community that experienced a miracle. You had people that had leprosy, yet it was someone outside of you. What he was trying to prepare them is, you are waiting a Messiah that you think is just for you, your community, but the Messiah who's coming, I am he, is for all nations, for every single person. And so why they became furious is because he checked their sense of elitism. He, sent, he checked and confronted 
their over-familiarity and thinking that they had a special place at his table above others. And Jesus was saying, no, the Messiah has come for all. And that infuriated them so much that they wanted to kill him. And here's what's interesting. One commentary, because think about it. It's kind of a weird scene. They bring him to the edge of the, of the hill, ready to throw him off. And then the next moment, he just walks through them. How did that happen? Like, how did he get away? Because it says he just walked right through them. One commentator mentioned that on the Sabbath, this was the Sabbath, there was only a certain amount of walking that Jews were allowed to do. And so in essence, they brought him to the very last step they were legally allowed to take. And he knew they couldn't take any more steps. And then he walked right through them. <laughs> it's an interesting notion to kind of confront even the brokenness of their religiosity at this moment. At the end of it all, they rejected the Messiah, even though he declared himself to be the one that they've been waiting for. Why would they do this? Why do we do this? What I want to propose at the heart of rejecting Jesus as Messiah is that we reject the kingdom that he declared that is present and is to come because we don't like that kingdom. We have a kingdom in mind by we humanity. And Jesus declares his kingdom to be a kind of kingdom that is actually very uncomfortable. What do I mean by this? Let's take a look. Luke chapter 7, verse 34, it describes Jesus' ministry in a very interesting way. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. What we hear in Luke's description, Luke was the author of the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And in these verses, he gives a very broad summary description of how Jesus was seen and interpreted and felt. And the first one in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel we hear basically a derogatory term or, or this was a negative perception that people were trying to say about Jesus. They were, they were describing him in this way, not to compliment him, but to actually put him down and to take him down a few notches. They said, this can't be the Messiah. This can't be the Savior. All we see him doing is eating with tax collectors and sinners. This can't be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. Because what we see him doing is around his table, we see prostitutes. We see people that society has said we should have no business with. They're always welcomed at his table. This can't be the Messiah. The Messiah, this, this is behavior that's unbecoming of the Savior of the world. 
Yet this is what they saw Jesus do continuously, and they had a huge disorientation toward it. But on top of that, when they saw Jesus' life, Acts 10.38 describes that every that the broad description of his life was one where the Holy Spirit anointed him with power, and everywhere he went, sick people were healed. Incurable diseases were lifted. People that were oppressed spiritually were set free. What was so bad about this? That at the end of the day, they said, man, that's all good and great, but we want nothing of that, and we will consent to Rome crucifying him. I don't know about you, but if I saw someone healing broken relationships in society, taking people that never sit at the same table, creating community and bringing unity, I wouldn't want them to be assassinated. Yet that's what ended up happening. If I saw someone, if you saw someone healing the sick, curing people of diseases that doctors have no answers for, why would we want to kill that person? Yet, at the end of the day, they rejected Jesus to the degree that they consented to his death at the hand of Rome. Why? Because it, it, it didn't matter what Jesus was doing. Why they rejected Jesus is because the kingdom he was declaring was at hand was a kingdom that confronted their kingdom. You see, because at Jesus' kingdom, the poor, the marginalized, women, tax collectors, prostitutes, they were at his table. And so if you wanted to be around Jesus, it meant you were going to have to be around people that society said you should avoid. People that society said were less than you. Let's be honest. How many of you have a friend that you love to hang out with, but that friend has a friend, and that friend is like, eh. And so what, what happens then when that friend says, hey, let's hang out? You're like, sure. Who's coming? So it's like, oh. Maybe, maybe, what's next month look like? Oh, you're busy. I'm busy. Oh, man, that keeps happening. <laughs> Why? Because you know if you hang out with them, you're going to have to hang out with the folks that maybe you don't want to hang out with. If you wanted to be around Jesus healing and his miracles and his teaching, you were going to have to sit next to someone that society said you shouldn't have to be forced to sit next to. Now, here's the thing. The powerful, the rich, the influencers, Jesus never said, you're not welcomed at my table. He never said, you can't come and sit. He, but, he also, but he never also made any disclaimers and said, just know if you come be next to me, you're going to be around these people. And so as a result, the powerful, the influential, they didn't find themselves at Jesus' table, not because he rejected them. They self-rejected themselves. And they said, we will have nothing to do with Jesus because if I say yes to Jesus, I have to be around people that I don't want to be around. 
the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is very different than the kingdom we set up. When we set up kingdoms, when we build kingdoms as people, our kingdoms are built around our comfort, our prejudices, our biases. Our kingdoms never confront us in any way that require us to change and be humble and confess sin. Jesus' kingdom always does that. Jesus' kingdom provides a really clarifying mirror for us to look at ourselves and recognize that there are some things that are very sick within us. See, the kingdom of God looks like what we see in the life of Jesus. Tables where all were welcomed, especially those that society said were less than. What does the kingdom of God look like for you and I? It looks like our tables looking like Jesus' table. It looks like us intentionally building community and relationship with people that are least like us. It looks like us intentionally making sure that the marginalized, the oppressed, those that have been forgotten, those that have been mistreated in society, that we intentionally make sure that we build relational bridges with them. And we do so not in the name of our comfort, we do so in the name of our king. And I can tell you that going to church every Sunday is way easier than saying yes to that kingdom. That you and I could come to church every Sunday, sing songs that talk about the kingdom of God, and then in our Monday to Saturday experience, live lives that deny his kingdom and exalt our kingdom. They didn't want anything to do with the kingdom that Jesus was describing, the kingdom he said was at hand. We want our kingdom. Our kingdom is built on power, on crushing our enemies. Our kingdom is built on distance from pain, not proximity to pain. Our kingdom is built on being homogeneous of having everything look and feel like our prejudices, our biases want, our kingdom doesn't look like the diverse expression of Revelation 7, every tribe, every tongue around the throne. Our kingdom is secluded and siloed. Our kingdom is us. And by us, it's what we feel comfortable, where we don't have to second guess can I be honest with you? If I could describe my kingdom in pastoral terms, it would be to pastor a 100% Puerto Rican congregation. I wouldn't have to think. I wouldn't have to guess. I wouldn't have to assume. I know it. I'd be very comfortable. I would never be challenged. I would never have to learn about the pain of African Americans. I would never have to sit and hear the pain of Asian Americans. Over these last couple years in particular, hearing the, the, the fear of violence against them. I would never have to hear stories of racism from other cultures. I'd never be challenged. 
That, that's my kingdom in pastoral terms. What's your kingdom like in whatever line of work you do, whatever neighborhood you live in? Jesus' kingdom looks very different than the kingdoms of men. In Jesus' kingdom, there's intentional proximity to pain. If people are broken, if people have been hurt by, by life, by sin, by the re repercussions of sin and the systems and the institutions that are created by people, we come close to it. We get next to it. We invite those to our table. We seek to be invitable to those tables. It's both and. It's you creating tables that you intentionally invite those that are least like you to your table. And it's also you living in such a way that people would invite you to their tables. You know, people loved Jesus. They loved hanging out with him. Even if after they left him, they went back to being a tax collector, a prostitute, they went back to doing whatever they were doing. When they were with him, they loved him. They loved being in his presence. It says something that people that don't follow God don't tend to want to hang out with us Christians. Why don't they feel the way they felt around Jesus when they're around us? See, and, and it's not like he just gave them radical grace and no challenge. He told people to go and sin no more. Could you imagine that? Go hang out with some folks from your job. And at the end of it, hey, man, John, it was good hanging out. Listen, go sin no more. All right, bro? Like that, that, that doesn't translate well in our day and age. Jesus didn't just say, hey, it's all right you live that way. It's okay, you know. Maybe cheat people a little bit less. No, he confronted people. At the same token, they felt fully welcomed in his presence. His kingdom looked radically different than ours. We confront people but don't make them feel welcome. Or we welcome people and don't confront them. Jesus did both. Jesus' kingdom looks like what theologians call a new humanity. Jesus came to create a new humanity within our existing humanity, a humanity that wasn't marked by the divisions that kept us captive all these centuries, a humanity that was now centered around him as Messiah and the new life that he brought to dead sinners. Jesus' kingdom looks like healing people that are bound, people that are oppressed, whether physically, spiritually, emotionally, being renewed, being set free. But our kingdom tends to look like the powerful overcoming their enemies. Our, our kingdoms tend to be defined by winning at the expense of those that we deem as losing and so they said, man, we want nothing to do with this kingdom that he's describing. So maybe if we kill him, this kingdom doesn't actually take root in this world. Little did they know. 
that by crucifying him and him rising from the dead, it would be the ultimate declaration of victory. That his kingdom can't be suppressed the way you suppress earthly kingdoms. There's certain governments in this world, if you kill the dictator, it could be the end of it. It could crumble. Jesus' kingdom, they crucified him, and it didn't stop his kingdom. It's outlasted Rome. It's outlasted empires. It's outlasted civilizations. And it continues to be alive and present today. What we see when we talk about the kingdom of God being already here but not yet, we have to understand this in light of how Jesus is described as Messiah. Isaiah described the Messiah as the one who would bind up the brokenhearted. Think about that. Right now, what's breaking people's heart throughout our city? I can tell you there's some kids who are going to sleep tonight brokenhearted because they're in the foster care system and they've been forgotten. I can tell you that there's communities that go to sleep brokenhearted because they know that they get way less resources than other communities. They get policed differently. Their schools look differently. The conditions of their streets and institutions look incredibly different. There's people that are going to sleep tonight because the pain of abuse and mistreatment and neglect is going unnoticed. There's people that are going to sleep tonight brokenhearted because they've experienced racism. They've experienced a dehumanizing interaction with institutions of power. When Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted, we cannot spiritualize that and tell ourselves that means he's come to heal people that are brokenhearted over their personal sin. No, he's come to heal people that are brokenhearted over the pain and the injustice and the brokenness of this world. It's actually really puzzling. These are live, active, theological debates that exist in this world where there's people that fully believe that sin has the power to pervasively corrupt an individual, but somehow can't believe that sin could corrupt an institution. It's the craziest thing. Like sin can pervert a human being, but those same human beings that are perverted by sin can't possibly create institutions that are corrupt. What we say is that sin in its pervasive nature, the Messiah is trying to cleanse society, not just individuals from it. And why that's important is because there are times when you will hear Christians themselves say, don't talk about those social issues. Don't talk about politics. Just preach the gospel. It's as if that when you talk about Jesus being brokenhearted over the poor, that you're describing a different Jesus. Meanwhile, it's the same Jesus that we're reading about that was prophesied, that he declared his own messiahship saying, I've not just come to heal the sinner of their guilty conscience and set them free from their personal idols. I've also come to set free a society that's in ruin. 
to heal the brokenhearted, to set the oppressed free. We strive to be a church that preaches the full gospel. It's a half gospel to say that Jesus is only concerned with personal sin. But it's also a half gospel to only say that Jesus is only concerned with societal ills. We say he is Lord over all, over both. It's good news to both. What good is it if we see society transformed and yet people are bound to a Christless eternity because they never experience the redeeming, healing love of Jesus in their individual lives? But what good is it to see people experience the, the, the transforming grace of Jesus in their individual lives and we watch communities go to hell in a handbasket and not care? How could we claim the same Messiah? That we hear described to us in, in scripture when he is preaching good news to both extremes. The kingdom of God, this is what it looks like. What we see in Jesus. But what we also understand is that the kingdom of God is here but it's not yet fully here. So what that means is that we see glimmers of hope. We see moments of breakthrough and change. But there's still so much more to come. I think, for example, of Do For One. I remember when Andrew was praying and dreaming about this organization being founded and the dream of people with disabilities and those without forming friendships for the sake of just the, the, the transforming power of that and also for, uh, for folks to be able to advocate, just dreaming of it. And now fast forward, many people in our city are being transformed by this. And he won't say it about himself in kind of these settings. Andrew's being invited to preach and teach in like international conferences about this. He's incredibly humble. But this is happening. And yet, those with disabilities still are incredibly marginalized. We see change, but there's still so much more. I think about our justice team here at the church. You, you have to understand, our justice team is not the people that do justice on our behalf. It's not like I attend this church and there's this committed group of people that thank God they're doing justice and I could just kind of just chill and, man, keep working hard. No, they are doing justice because our church is committed to justice. And, and therefore, this is a space that not just a few are intended to occupy. We all have to figure out what it means to occupy that, that theology, that grounding, that activism. To this day, it amazes me to, to fast forward to now, remembering what it used to be like. There was a time, you come to our church now and you could think, oh wow, this church is all the way out here and I didn't know this. And There was a time where we didn't talk about these things. We didn't have the theological language, the ability to frame this. There was a time where if something required us to speak up, we didn't have the ability to do so with coherence. And I thank God for the strides that have happened. You know why many, I, uh, this is going to be sobering. I know a lot of pastors that are quitting in mass. I tell you, it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking. And they're quitting now because they got really beat up in 2020. 
And you know why a lot of them got beat up? It's because society was burning and they didn't know what to do. And if they said too much, churches said enough. If they said too little, churches said enough. It was a really difficult space. And I thank God that by God's providence, our church was positioned. Donald was hired 2018 with the hope of helping us to create a theology around this and a community around this for us to be able to actually have biblical conversations around this stuff and to commit our lives to it. And by 2020, when things required the church to speak up, we were able to speak up with integrity. It wasn't something that we were forcing. But even then, I don't feel like we've done enough. There's still too many of us in this room, I'll speak to us, in this church, still too many of us that justice is a concept out here and it's for people that are in that space and we have not yet figured out what our response, our individual response should be. But forget that. In addition, look around us. Right now there are hundreds of families just a stone's throw away from here in asylum from Venezuela. Utterly disoriented. And yes, we, thank God our, our church, we, we, were, we were there. We, were, we provided vital resources, not just our church, many other churches. But there's still so much to do. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully. Any given Sunday, I walk away incredibly encouraged. When I see hands raised and I see people saying yes to Jesus. But if I let this room be the only thing that I interpret the rest of the city, I will walk around in an illusion, imagining that more people than just us are following Jesus. All around us, there's people that are far from God, that need to bow their knee to the king. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully here. With that, I want to invite us, if we could stand. And as we stand, the worship team is going to come forward and lead us in the time of prayer and response. And as we sing and pray in these next few moments, the prayer team is in the back to my right, to your left, and at any given moment over these next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for anything you need prayer, whether it was the words that were shared earlier, something you're journeying with, whatever that might be, they would love to pray with you. But at this time, if you feel comfortable doing so, can I invite you just to bow your heads for a moment, kind of center ourselves, push out the distractions and just lean our hearts toward Jesus. And as we do, as we do so, if, if you feel comfortable, can I invite you to raise your hands in the presence of God? A physical posture that communicates surrender, communicates receiving. And I wonder for us in this room, what's the ache? 
that Jesus is calling you to acknowledge in light of his kingdom being here but not yet fully? Is your heart aching for those that are far from God that don't trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, have not professed faith in him, have not experienced cleansing from their sin and shame and freedom from their idols? Is that your ache for the kingdom to come more fully? Or is your ache one that says the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed don't know that God loves them, that he's for them, that he wants to change their circumstances, that he fights for them? Jesus the Messiah makes room for both of those aches because his heart breaks for both, not to the exclusion of the other. Jesus, help us to be a people that embrace the kingdom you described you were bringing, not the kingdom we want and the kingdom that already exists. Break into our world, to our hearts, to our minds. Let your kingdom come, your will be done. In Astoria, Woodside, Sunnyside, Corona, Long Island City, Flushing, Forest Hills, Middle Village. God, throughout this incredible borough, let your kingdom come in Jackson Heights. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's seek him together.